It's easy to tell the difference between someone who's right and someone who's wrong because at times it can be obvious and it doesn't take a great deal of wisdom. Where the wisdom needs to come in is when someone mixes accuracy and inaccuracy. And in that you have to pull out those things that are accurate and true and dismiss those things that are inaccurate and not true. Elihu speaks to Job and to three friends very confidently as if he knows all. And it is as if he's speaking for God. And at times he thinks he is speaking for God. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Job is difficult because we have to shift through that which is inaccurate made statements by the various people speaking to Job and even Job himself and when they are accurate. And so, again, as Elihu continues in his speech to Job and the three friends, he mixes inaccuracies about God with accuracies about God, and we need to shift through that. Now, fortunately, the Calvary's coming. In a couple of chapters, looking at next week, we'll actually see what God has to say. And so um, I'm looking very forward to that because it's easier to hear God than it is to have to shift through what these various theologians think about things. And so in Job chapter 35, it says, Then Elihu continued and said, so he's already you know, told us that he's because of his age, he waited to listen to the older guys, and the older guys never refuted Job, and Job is a complete idiot, and he's just so full of himself and words that he just has to bush, gush forth and just regurgitate all over them his wisdom. And so he hasn't finished, and he's continuing on. And so he says, do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? So he has, he somewhat misplaced the argument. Job's complaint is, I'm an innocent guy. All these terrible things are happening to me, but they're not happening to me because I'm guilty. And everybody's saying, no, the reason they're happening to you is because you're guilty, because you're a, a sinner and that you... You, you need to get it right. So he hasn't accused God of, of having less justice in him. He's just questioning, why is God doing these things? And he says, for you say, what advantage will it be to you? Or what profit will I have more than if I had sinned? So what he's saying that, in essence, he's attributing to Job, well, according to God, what does it matter if I'm a righteous person or if I'm a sinner? Doesn't affect God, big deal. In verse 4, he goes, I will answer you and your friends with you. So he's, again, not only attacking Job, but attacking the three other guys. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if, you trend, and if your transgressions are many, 
what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you have to give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a man, son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is my God, my maker, who gives song in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heaven. So first off, he says, in essence, Job, you're, you're right. If you're a sinner, does it affect God? And if you're a righteous man, does it affect God? Now, this is where there's this razor-fine line. God is God. And nothing I can do will make him more God, and nothing I can do will make him less God. God is God. But I have seen throughout the scriptures how God is repelled and repulsed and hates sin. Look at Noah and the world, and, he, and God said, there was only evil in the hearts of men continually always, and so he decided to destroy them and just save Noah, who was considered a righteous man. When he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and no sooner had they been there, and Moses went up to the mount to get Sinai to get the law, that God said, they're just running amok down there. I'm going to destroy them and keep you. Obviously, God was affected by their sin. God was so affected by our sin that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross that we might be forgiven of our sin. So God is still God regardless, but for some reason, God loves us so much that he is impacted by our sin or our righteousness. So Elihu is wrong that God is just up there somewhere and it just doesn't matter. As I read earlier, we are his workmanship to do good deeds. He is involved. And yes, he teaches us more than the beasts of the field. There they cry out, verse 4, but he doesn't answer them because of the pride of evil men. Now, he's kind of, again, partially right. One of the things God hates more than most other things, is pride. Because pride goes before the fall. Pride tells us we don't need anything. Pride says I am self-sufficient. So yes, God hates pride and therefore is less likely to do something in response. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say you do not behold him. The case is before him, and you must wait for him. And now because he has not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression well, though Job opens his mouth emptily, he multiplies words without knowledge. He's saying, Job, you keep crying out for God's justice. He doesn't answer you. And then he's again accusing Job. He says, the reason God's not answering you is because you're evil. You're a wicked man. You're unrighteous. 
You have pride. If you would not have these things, then God would listen to you. Unfortunately, he's wrong again. Now, I will say we have a little bit more advantage because there's specific scriptures that tells us. As Ed referenced before his prayer, when we pray, when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with words to deepen. God is there praying the way we ought to pray when we don't know. The scriptures also tell us because of Jesus that we can go boldly to the throne room of heaven, the place of the Holy of Holies where God dwells, and we can find grace and help in time of need. So yes, we can seek God even when we don't know how to frame it or how to say it or what's going on. So again, the focus is not how do we get Job where he needs to be or if Job where he needs to be. It's simply we're going to condemn Job consistently. Which again, for you and I, there's oftentimes people will condemn us not having all the facts. And they'll be confident about it. And surely you're wrong. Just because they're confident doesn't make them right. Chapter 36. I'm sorry, 35. No, 36, we'll move on. Then he continued and said, wait for a little while and I will show you that there is yet more to be said in God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. So he's stating, I'm so brilliant that my knowledge goes from this place to that place. You ought to listen to me because I'm brilliant and because I'm going to praise God Therefore, I'm worthy to be listened to. For truly, my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Well, we've already seen he's not complete or perfect in knowledge. He's incomplete. But yet, his pride, if you will, that he's accused Job of, has blinded him to his imperfections and incompleteness. But again, it's not anything that we don't see today. We'll hear that God so loved us that he'll go to any place in the universe to track us down. That, that God uh, just can't wait for me to respond to him and, and that, that my love for him is something that he's awaiting for and eagerly can't stand to be without and that we have this boyfriend, Jesus, who if we just make our request, he'll fulfill them because he's, he's just there as our magic genie. Yes, God is love. But he's not that. Because he's also righteous. 
He's also holy. He's also wrathful because he hates sin. He also is merciful and kind and long-suffering and faithful and all-powerful and all-knowledge and omnipotent, omniscient, and his days are without number with before or after. He is all of those things, and yet we sometimes only tune in to those things that make us feel good at a particular time. Behold, God is mighty, but does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives justice to the afflicted. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters and are caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their works and their transgressions that they have magnified themselves. He opens their ears to instructions and commands that they return from evil. If they hear and serve him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if they do not hear, they shall perish by the sword and they will die without knowledge. But the godless in the heart lays up anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life perishes among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted in their affliction and opens their ears in time of oppression. Then indeed, he entices you from the mouth of distress. Instead of it, a broad place with no constraint, and that which was set on your table was full of fatness. But you were full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment on and justice take hold of you. Beware that wrath does not entice you to scoffing, and do not let the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your righteous keep you from distress, or all the forces of your strength. Do not long for the night when people vanish in their places. Be careful and do not turn to evil, for you have preferred this to affliction. Again, he continues to, even though he says that he doesn't condemn, he continues to condemn. And, he, and again, he has this one aspect of theology the retribution philosophy that says, if you do bad, God's going to punish. If you do well, God's going to bless you. Job has already addressed this specifically. And go, wait a minute, God. I've seen the wicked, and sometimes they're really prosperous. They make lots of money and have lots of things, and they have lots of years. And yet, denying reality, he continues to assert, no, no, if you're evil, you get squashed, and if you're not, you prosper. Observation tells us that's wrong. Yes, God does come to the afflicted and the needy. And he comforts, and sometimes... As we like to say, life isn't fair. And sometimes 
the unrighteous prosper and sometimes the righteous don't and are afflicted. And you'll see some of the most beautiful children sometimes are the ones who are, have disabilities. And you go, this family is working so hard and they're having these problems and these idiots just keep rolling along doing well. God isn't looking at the short term. God is looking at the entire perspective. And sometimes what God says is, yes, I know you're hurting now, but I'm going to wipe the tears from your eyes. I know you're sick now, but I'm going to give you a body that never has sickness or death. I know people are not fair to you. I'm not going to give you fairness. I'm going to give you mercy and eternal life. God makes life better than fair because he intercedes. So don't be trapped by what these people keep saying. If God blesses, you must be doing well. And if God doesn't bless, you must be doing terrible. As a matter of fact, Jesus turns it on his head and they go, and all we got to do is look at who was the one single perfect person that ever has lived? He's, how did they treat him? They treated him so well, they put him on a cross. They buried him in a borrowed tomb and said, we're finished with that guy. That person who raised from the dead said, if they treated me that way, don't think they're going to treat you better. So sometimes our afflictions and our persecutions may be a statement that God is involved in our lives, not the opposite. Verse 22, behold, God is exalted in his power. Amen. He's getting some things right. Who is a teacher like him? No one. Jesus was the, which is great. People who don't even want to pay attention to him will say that he's a great teacher. Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, you have done wrong? Remember that you should exalt his work, of which men have sung. All men have seen it. Man beholds from afar. Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the midst, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? The thundering of his pavilion. Behold, he spreads his lightning about him, and he covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its noise declares his presence. The cattle also concerning what is coming. So Eliyahu gets correct. God is powerful. And you can see him in his world. You can see his power and his strength and his glory. But he's wrong in the sense of not all men see that. As a matter of fact, they try to reject it. 
And speaking of confidence, the scientific community says God had nothing to do with the creation. It was the Big Bang. And they say that with great confidence that it was started some X billions of years ago and they keep moving the time back because whatever. And they never say we think it or we believe it or the evidence might suggest it. They say it with confidence. And we Christians ought to run and hide because science says so. Have you seen the latest news about the James Webb telescope? Or now they're in fear that maybe the Big Bang never happened? So what's science doing now? They're having to read. But notice they never told us, well, we might be right. It's No, we were until more evidence comes that maybe they're not. Again, the world does not necessarily see the power of God and acknowledge it. As a matter of fact, Revelation tells us that when God is doing some of the things that he's doing, that instead of repenting, they simply cry out for the rocks to fall on them to hide them. The Eli, who has a much too beneficial view of mankind, because oftentimes, as the scripture says, when given the opportunity, man rejects God. Chapter 37. At this point also, my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heavens, he lets it loose. His lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightning when, it, when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. He seals the hands of every man that all men may know his works. Yes, he makes it evident. But again, as the scripture says, we deny the creator and worship the creation. Then the beast goes into the lair and remains in its sin. Yes, at least animals have enough sense that when things happen, they retreat, but not us. Out of the south comes the storm and out of the north, the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made and the expanse of water is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick clouds. He disperses the clouds of his lightning. It changes directions, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it. On the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. That's right. Sometimes he does things because of correction. Sometimes he does it for loving kindness. And sometimes, and sometimes we just don't know. Perfect example of that. One farmer needs rain and prays for rain. And one farmer doesn't need rain yet and prays that the rain holds off. What does God do? God does what God wants to do. But we don't know what's right. Fortunately, it's not out for us to decide before God. 
whether for correction or for the world, or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. And do you know how God established them and makes the lightning of his clouds to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick cloud, the wonders of the one perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot and the land is still because of the south wind, and you with him spread out the skies, strong as a molten mirror. Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? Now men do not see the light which is bright in the sky. But the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. So now he's completed his, he's at least finalized his statement by saying, God is awesome. God is powerful. God is to be exalted. It's like God as the sun and the clouds are dispersed. Again, he doesn't know God. The psalmist tells us that we are told that there is a God and that he is majestic by his creation. The stars make a statement of who he is. The earth, the mountains, the seas all talk about God's majesty. The fact that there is a God is apparent in the world and in the universe. It tells us only so much about who God is. It tells us he's obviously powerful. It tells us that he was here before this whole thing started, whether it was 3.4 billion years ago or yesterday. But he was before it. It tells us many mighty and wonderful things, but it doesn't necessarily tell us who he is. He tells us that he is. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by his power. When he may, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than he. You want to know who God is? Study Jesus. You want to know what God would do? Study Jesus. You want to have the great qualities of God? Study Jesus. Because he's the exact representation of God. 
a God who is loving, a God who is merciful, a God who is self-sacrificing, and yet a God who said, I have forgiven you of sins, go and sin no more. One who said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. But yet the same person who said, Sodom and Gomorrah, if they'd had one like me, would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But I speak to you in parable, for the hearing you do not hear and seeing you do not see. See, that's all of who God is. So he hasn't left us to wonder about the thunder and the lightning and the rain and the snow. He's told us who he is. And he's told us what he wants. And so, in wisdom, when someone says, I know I'm right, and I know you're wrong, what does the word of God say? That's how you tell. It's not their confidence. I was given an advice in law school. It said, when you're right on the facts, pound on the facts. When you're right on the law, pound on the law. When you're neither right on the law or facts, you pound on the table. And there are a lot of people who pound on the table. But just because they pound on the table doesn't make them right. See the word of God. Understand the word of God. And do the word of God. Whether you suffer for a little bit of time or you've been blessed your entire life because of him. him. For we have been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Lest anyone he is holy and he because of his love is doing the impossible making us holy separate for his use and all God's people said